You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name hosting a fledgling podcast on the most fundamental issues underpinning our future survival on a troubled planet is my game. In other words, dear listener, a barrel of laughs awaits you. (laughs) Now, I'm sure most of us have at some point visited an eco-house with all the north-facing eco-fashionable mud-brick mod-cons with grey water reticulation around the three-acre food forests. Or if you haven't visited one of these personally, then at least you've seen one of these on Grand Designs or the equivalent. At any point, when you saw the people who owned these self-contained, self-sufficient acreages, did you go, that's all very well, but I bet they had to work 30 years as a hedge fund manager suckling on the teats of unfettered neoliberalism and tax evasion to be able to afford this setup? Well, this is a hyperbolated conclusion my brain often goes down. Apologies to all the wonderful people who've ever showed me around your low-carbon home whose characters I likely judged unfairly. I'm sure it was a very nice ethical hedge fund that you worked in. But jokes aside, I always wondered whether this was just me being overly bitter and envious, which I most certainly am. However, it turns out there's some truth beneath the fumes of my jealousy. So last year, I read an article in The Conversation, because I'm so intellectual, (laughs) where I discovered an article co-written by Samuel Alexander, one of my academic degrowth heroes, and Alex Borman, my soon-to-be academic degrowth hero. In this article, I discovered a bit of a shocking truth. You know that evil, scheming 1% that are doing a planet up the proverbial? Well... For a huge chunk of Australians who own their own home. That puts you in the top 1%, my friend, by virtue of owning a stupidly inflated asset which is probably worth over a million. So next time you join the Occupy movement, you might just be trying to reclaim the streets from yourself. Yes, that's right, Daddy-O, the devil's in the mirror. Alex Borman and I met online. That's where we meet everyone these days, after all on the Town Planning Rebellion Facebook page. Alex heard my interview with Ted Trainer and resonated with my sentiments at the end of that episode, where I was feeling all troubled about my decades of turbulent renting history and moving to Western Australia to buy land. So we got talking and Alex shared several articles and videos where he brings up the important issue of housing and why this is an overlooked aspect to the degrowth movement as the current system requires one to drop into the system before one can afford to drop out. Alex offers several solutions to this Catch-22 predicament, such as reinvigorating the public housing sector. I won't say any more of this, as Alex Borman says it's so much better, but just a couple of announcements before we hear Alex's dulcet tones. Firstly, Martin Tai, Australian Regional Chapter Director for the Centre of the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, or CASI, will be delivering a Zoom presentation for SLF on degrowth and the steady state at 9am Australian Eastern Daylight Saving Time. Martin was a guest for the first ever episode of PGAP. It was great then, and I'm sure he'll be even better this time around, if such a thing is even possible. Link in the description. The song of choice for this episode is Meditations on Simplicity from Mortimer's Method. Now there is a little bit of serendipity playing here. The album Dreaming Backwards Falling Awake, of which this track is from, is based on excerpts of the degrowth fiction book Entropia, written by Samuel Alexander. Samuel is Alex's colleague who co-wrote the aforementioned article with him. What can I say? We live in an interconnected universe. I hope you enjoy my pithy conversation with Alex on housing. (laughs) 
Alex, I always ask guests how they are. Um, you're living in Greater Sydney areas, so that question carries with it an extra gravitas, so you don't have to answer that question if it's wrong. <laughs> I'm happy to answer because I'm doing pretty well, actually. Thank you, Michael. For me, it hasn't changed much. I, I work from home predominantly. I live in the beautiful Blue Mountains, as you said, so we have hawks at our doorsteps and you know, I enjoy my home and the people I live with, so doing pretty well. Alex, firstly, tell us a little about yourself, your passions and motivations, and what got you not only into academia, but also post-growth and degrowth. You know, I think I had a very early, fairly intuitive notion that consumerism was a bit worrying, you know, it was a bit out of control. So I think I had an early sort of inkling that the more sort of... Um, sort of perverse, if you like, forms of our consumerism were an issue. I, I remember very early feelings that, oh my God, we can't be doing that, you know, when it came to certain types of consumerism and, and so on. So I think I had a, I know we're very feeling based as humans. I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, what drives us in terms of what's actually brought it much more into my awareness. Um, in the early, probably actually the late 90s, in my early 20s, I came across the work of Ted Trainer, who you had on this program. It was actually introduced to me through a, a dear friend of mine who's actually become a bit of a mentor, Chris Bowman, who shares a surname very similar to mine. And that set me on the path to post-growth or degrowth type of thinking. Um, Ted Trainer was very informative. I went out to his property at Pickface Point and very convincing argument about the need for scaling down the sort of the developed world lifestyle. What got you into academia? I spent some years um, working on the exact work I'm working on now before academia, actually. I am um, in a much more grassroots way. I was in share housing with Chris, who I mentioned earlier. And what we were doing is we'd formed a group of about 10 households and we were working together to develop these ideas that I've taken further in my writings in academia. And we were actually looking to put a project on the ground. It turned out to be much harder than we thought. We were looking to find sort of public land access for ourselves and to cooperate in the ways that I talk about in, in this sort of approach. And that Ted Trainer very much talks about in terms of what, what could a more sustainable lifestyle look like? Well, you know, it's about much more local cooperation and much more local productivity. So we were gardening together. We were um, in rental accommodation at the time, but looking, all had our names down on the public housing waiting list and in hope that we would get access to public land for the sort of local cooperative type of development that I talk about in the sort of strategic approach to degrowth. Now, we've um, got a big conversation on public land <laughs> coming mm. up now. As many PGAP listeners have probably got the general gist by now, uh, I have a few opinions when it comes to the town planning sector, the property industry, and how much you have to pay for some upturned concrete with a shelf life of milliseconds these days. See, there we go, an opinion. It's um, <laughs> through town planning rebellion where we connected. So um, your line of research and specialty is quite niche. Yes. <laughs> One could say. Um, so I was wondering if you'd like to take the time to flesh this out a little bit bit for us. Yes, it is quite niche. It's kind of a niche within a niche, if you like. I am in the broad field of what's called post-growth, which degrowth is in, you know, the idea that we need to sort of scale down developed world lifestyles. That's a broad sort of umbrella that I'm under too. But within that, I'm particularly looking at the way uh, private land access uh, ties us in structurally to the growth world that degrowth is trying to sort of respond to. In very practical terms, as you've said, the cost of, you know, upturned piece of concrete um, is very expensive. In fact, the Grattan Institute now says it's seven times the median income as opposed to four times in the early 90s. We've really, you know, the cost of housing has, is through the roof, to use a, an appropriate metaphor. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. So what does that involve? You know, if I was to demonstrate aspects of degrowth in my own life, in the house that I'm in, if I spent years um, in the growth economy to pay that rent or mortgage on that house with the cost that it is, what kind of path am I setting out? Um, the path that I'm setting out is one where people have to do a hell of a lot of dropping in uh, to secure housing 
before they can even think about the sort of downscaling that degrowth asks us to do. There's something very structural here that I'm suggesting is tying us into the growth economy. The reason I call it structural, which is a sort of a big academic idea, is that it's part of the very fabric or very structure of the society we live in now. It was actually, if you trace it back, land privatisation was capitalism's initial, very first privatisation. It's what Marx called primitive accumulation. It occurred in the 1800s during land enclosures in Europe, beginning as early as the 1500s and still continuing today, and then spread, of course, through colonisation. The idea that common lands were enclosed, they were privatised. What did that mean for your average commoner in Europe then and for Indigenous peoples throughout the world as colonisation spread? was that their local subsistence way of life on commons, which is an economic space in itself, isn't it? Local collaboration on common land is an economic mode of operation. That's probably humanity's oldest mode of human operation. That was very quickly, of course, uprooted by enclosures when commoners were kicked off common lands, forced into sort of situations where they had to buy land, which meant that they had, this was the beginning of the working class or what Marx called the proletariat. Proletariat literally means that you are landless with only your labour to sell. Now, this is our situation now. It's what you and I face. If we need to rent or mortgage, which we all do, what sort of growth opportunities do you and I need? And how picky indeed can we be about those growth opportunities when we must service the mortgage or the rent? Very interestingly, the term mortgage you know, comes from mort, mortuary. It's a debt <laughs> till you die. Um, this is the structural way that capitalism ties us into growth. And we've seen this very much with COVID, haven't we, as major um, industries, such, you know, tourism um, and so on have closed down. People are under great housing threat as they lose those opportunities. I mean, it's great for degrowth, isn't it, that people aren't flying around and using that sort of carbon. But what does it mean for average people? It means that their rent and mortgage situations become even more precarious. Um, and so government has to step in to try and keep those people from becoming homeless with, you know, mortgage freezes and rent freezes. And this is a major problem that degrowth really not needs to tackle is that if land is private, how can we talk about the degrowth of industry when people are so dependent on that industry to keep a roof over their head? Just as the enclosure of commons began the growth system, the work I'm looking at is suggesting is that it's the reclaiming or restoring of urban types of commons through use of public land that could really lay a foundation for a different type of development, a, a development that didn't require every, everyone working in tourism and retail and, and commodities and all these things that we're currently so reliant on. As an academic, I'm reliant this sort of income. My students largely come from overseas. There's a lot of carbon involved in that. A lot of our funding comes from government and, you know, how does government major revenue get earned? It's through commodities, isn't it? It's through iron ore and gas. This is what pays my rent. So without public land, I, I rely on that. Even as a post-growth academic, I can't say, oh, please stop funding me to the government because I've got to pay my rent. The land issue is my niche within the niche of degrowth. Like. <laughs> a Russian doll of niche. <laughs> I think a Russian doll is a perfect metaphor. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> I should actually make that Russian doll. <laughs> that should be your niche. <laughs> yeah. I think I, you know, my lectures would go a lot better if I could use this Russian doll. Yes, I'm going to use. <laughs> See, there we go. It's exchange of ideas. So perfect. An article of yours with Samuel Alexander. Uh, blew my mind away recently. Well done. You've done that oh, as thank well. You. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a compliment. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was in the conversation that many Australians in the world's dreaded top 1% <laughs> are in the dreaded top 1% simply by virtue of the process of attempting home ownership of any of our country's million-plus-dollar houses. Mm. So this forces people into certain income brackets and lifestyle choices, et cetera, et cetera. And you're talking about the degrowth movement, and aren't we all in that position of where we're just kind of, okay, 40 more years in the mining and finance sector, and then I can have my self-sufficient house and be off-grid. Yeah. And, and in the meantime, 
the <laughs> next several decades, although you might not be spiritually buying into it, but the virtue of your work mm. is perpetuating this growth-based society just in order to be degrowth. So it's not talked about apart from you, perhaps. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> look, this... I think the conversation around this really needs to begin. That article that you're talking about, uh, that we are the 1%, they were figures that came out of um, the Global Wealth Report and Oxfam's um, recent report, which basically said anyone with um, a net wealth of about um, a million Australian dollars or a bit over a million Australian dollars, which includes housing and net wealth, any aspect of your wealth, is really qualifies as being in this top 1%. This is many Australians. If you don't qualify into this top 1%, which many of us do, you most certainly probably qualify in the top 10%, uh, which is anyone with a net worth of over about 100,000 Australian dollars. We're part of a very small elite group, this 10%, producing about 50%, 52% of global carbon. Um, and that starts to give you some indication of just how elite we are. Now, as opposed to finger pointing about this and saying, geez, we are the problem, what the article, the gist of the article was really saying, what you're saying, Michael, here, which is that this is pretty much what we've got to do. Um, we must be part of this wealth generation because how else do you survive in this society? And it's not about just about keeping up with the Joneses survival. It's about keeping a roof over your head survival. And that's if you know, you've read any of Maslow, you know, shelter is a primary need. It's not a want. Um, you know, in degrowth, we like to distinguish wants from needs. Um, housing is a need. It's a need we're likely to put even before an existential threat like cl the climate crisis. If if you must uh, pay your rent or mortgage next week, well, you can't afford to be too fussy, can you, about where that money comes from in order to pay that uh, rent or mortgage. And I go back to my situation here. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone else. I uh, work for Western Sydney University. Uh, I get paid in order to be able to afford the home that I'm in. I know very well where that money comes from. It's funded by international students. It's funded by government's revenue, uh, which is pri predominantly resources. You know, it's commodities, it's, it's uh, iron ore, it's services like tourism, which are very carbon intensive. But we're caught between a bit of a rock and a hard place here. There's been much talk about the urgency in terms of people understanding the need for degrowth. But I would suggest this is at least one major obstacle to people accepting the idea of degrowth. If it threatens their ability to put a roof over their head, and they intuitively know that, if they know that they require that growth opportunity, that market share to keep their, their housing opportunity, what does degrowth offer them other than shooting themselves in the foot? And my basic message to degrowth, and I consider myself part of the degrowth movement, is that we really need a housing and lifestyle strategy that's not dependent on growth. <laughs> and once we find that housing and lifestyle strategy that's not dependent on growth, wouldn't it be logical that we're in a better position to, to share the message of degrowth? Um, that we can offer a path, a degrowth path to people, not just intellectual people who are ideologically sort of commit to it like you and I perhaps, and maybe some of the listeners who see the logic and reasoning for it, but people also who are looking for to secure their life path, to actually put a roof over their heads and, and move forward. This is the ch real challenge, isn't it, in the real world. It's, it's providing degrowth pathways that, are, that people can genuinely follow. And I think you even said this um, in one of your recent articles that degrowth sets an almost impossible uh, task when an essential need is so caught up in the quagmire of the growth-based system. Yeah. And I have observed myself that neoliberalism significantly through the property sector has a tendency to appropriate anything that is progressive or alternative and turn it into an overpriced uh, facsimile of itself. Mm. You know, get a bunch of artists in an abandoned warehouse in um, Newcastle, and then what happens? Gentrify the neighbourhood and knock down the warehouse and build mm. a bunch of battleship grey apartments. Although we've got great ideas, the way that um, capitalism and um, late-stage capitalism can just twist it around, it's just quite well, insidious, isn't it? When you you know, I think we need... I think you're absolutely right, and what I would say is that... We've got to be careful not to personify or give a personhood 
to um, neoliberalism. In fact, it's us doing this. Uh, we're the ones, um, you know, I could be anyone in my work. In fact, I am doing it in my academia. I'm trying to get a financial return for what I'm doing. Why am I trying to do that? Well, because I've got to. I mean, that's the imperative. I mean, all of us have got to in some way, particularly once you've had a child or two, you need housing security and so on. So what I'm saying here is that any idea we have is currently becoming commodified. What does gentrification mean? It means the cost of being in a place becomes exclusive and it starts forcing people out who can't afford to stay in that place. That's, again, back to this land issue. If we allow anything to improve something, like a community garden improves the neighbourhood, um, at the moment that has the effect of making it more desirable. That affects property prices and people want to move. This is a problem that goes to, again, I think the very foundation of the issue, and land is, a, is where the idea of foundation comes from. Um, it sits at the very base of an economy. I mean, all the great economic philosophers say you can define a system by its relationship to land. You know, Proudhon, the great anarchist philosopher, said property was theft, and that was called to the anarchist thinking. And Marx said that you can define capitalism in one sentence, which is the privatisation of land. Um, gentrification occurs if you have a good idea. Why? Because that makes an area more desirable, which then, of course, becomes increases the cost of land, which forces lower income people out. I think the way to avoid gentrification in an idea like this is public land and the increase in supply of public land through more and more public housing, because then you don't gentrify, you give the people who have the least wealth the greatest opportunity in that area, no matter how great that neighbourhood starts to look. I'm trying to get to the core reason why so much of our progressive and innovative stuff actually plays into gentrification if it doesn't address the land issue. And the land issue might come across a little out of the blue to some yes. um, of the listeners, even those interested in degrowth. <laughs> is there a heritage to this issue um, yeah. or is this something that has emerged from your own particular um, Russian doling? Harden's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> famous tragedy of the commons thesis would have us believe that individual users of open access to any given common act only in self-interest and cause depletion of that resource. And mm. how would this not be the case if urban housing and food commons became as central to sustainability as you are suggesting? Yeah, yeah, the tragedy of the commons thesis is a good one. And um, I often get given that idea back because, of course, from the privatisation of land, we have had tremendous innovation, haven't we? I mean, we've built a society that's largely come about because people have been able to own property and in that ownership they've capitalised and they've, for their own individual uh, benefit, and we've seen incredible development. And I, I certainly wouldn't argue about that, you know. The point I would make here is degrowth's very issue is that we don't live on an unlimited planet, you know, that perhaps we have over-innovated in the developed world and we need to move towards a more steady state type of economy. So how would we do that? Um, well, the tragedy, the common thesis, of course, was very much built in, in, in an era when modernity was looking amazing and that private land and innovation and development was what it was all about. And there was a considered stagnancy to the idea of commons that, you know, it didn't foster innovation. It just, it was steady. It was steady state. And of course, Eleanor Ostrom, the Nobel Prize winning political scientist, actually debunked the idea, didn't she? Because she said that um, Hardin's idea of the tragedy of the common was really built on this whole idea of individualism, that there were no rules or customs regulating that common. That's a myth because you know, as I was saying earlier, the oldest human economy is commons and people collaborating on commons. And there's a whole bunch of agreements and shared um, customs that regulate those commons when you have that sort of an arrangement. They've tested and proven, perhaps among the most tested and proven regulations in the world, because it's the oldest human settlement pattern in the world. And those customs have really served to maintain the integrity of commons for most of human history. So long as you have a collective with customs and rules, um, you can maintain commons very well. Indeed, we kind of face the tragedy of the private now, don't we? We're about to walk off 
an ecological cliff um, thanks to innovation and growth and capitalism. What kind of tragedy of the private is that? Some people, of course, argue that we need to then privatise our oceans and our biosphere and all these things, and then we'll stop dumping into them. Just take privatisation to the next step, and then we'll be able to preserve our environment. But It's um, funny that um, privatisation hasn't worked yet, but as soon as we privatise environment, then it will work, you know? Yes. <laughs> Fighting fire with fire there as degrowth argues, is that we do need opportunities that don't require growth. If we want an opportunity that doesn't require growth, we need a foundation. We need to give people a foundation that doesn't require them to secure market share, doesn't require them to secure growth. That really comes down to the land issue, just as the, the enclosure of the commons sort of initiated our dependence on markets and growth. Um, a restoring of urban commons could give people a very different opportunity. It could give them the opportunity to turn their labour into their communities and be involved in much more local and subsistence type of development that people like Ted Trainer say are required for degrowth economies. Who's, who's got the bloody time <laughs> to be involved in local subsistence type development when, you know, keeping a roof over your head really requires you to run out into the marketplace and sell your labour in whatever way you can. And as I said, you know, how fussy can you really be, especially once you've had a child or something like that? I mean, even once you age, you know, you need housing security. You certainly get to a point in your life. And I heard this from you, Michael, in, in the interview you did with Ted Trainer. At the end, you did a little piece and you were talking about, wow, I've kind of really re reached this stage where I, I kind of, I've got to secure a bit of land and housing for myself. You know, this is getting ridiculous. All of us, of course, this is Maslow's basic idea, isn't it? That at the base of our self-actualization is shelter and we've got to be able to secure that um, and we build everything on top of that. Well, capitalism has built its growth system on top of private land. And if we want a degrowth economy, it's really about going back to that indigenous idea and it's indigenous to all of us, indigenous to Europeans in the commons and indigenous to indigenous people here in Australia, the idea that land is common. It's it's a product of nature, not of the market. Land is our collective natural heritage. And the idea that you should be in a life debt through a mortgage or a rent to service the cost of land, it's kind of dubious ethically, you could say, because it's not a product of the state. But it's, of course, also dubious in terms of just pragmatism, in terms of ecological limits, because if, if all of the world has to follow this model, if every individual needs market opportunity in tourism, in retail, in mining, in whatever, in order to secure their bit of land, then the growth machine better roll on. And this is the sort of rock and a hard place I believe our politicians accord in. People demand market opportunity. Jobs and growth, as you always hear, is the primary drive of political leaders. Whoever ends up in that seat, you know, you could have the Greens end up in that seat tomorrow. The pressure for them to create growth opportunity would be enormous, or they'd be out on their ear. You must secure shelter for yourself. That's, that's immediate. Right now in capitalism, that means market share. That means jobs. And so what I'm saying is that if we could give back public land opportunities, we could have a different drive, um, a different reality for people in terms of what they must do to survive. And um, I, I think this is a missing link in the degrowth chain at the moment. It's a very foundational link that would tether the, the rest of the um, thinking, which is so sound and based in, you know, the whole heritage of limits to growth since the 70s Club of Rome studies. There's very good science behind limits to growth and degrowth theory. But what it's not tethered to is the reality people face to survive. That's the land issue. This is not a familiar issue. As you said in the question, um, it may sound a little bit out of the blue, the idea that the land and, and privatisation of land is central to what ties us into growth. That might sound, oh, who, where the hell did that idea come from? But actually its heritage is enormous, of course, because all great economic philosophy from Marx, Proudhon, through to Adam Smith and John Locke, all made this central point that land privatisation sits at the very beating heart of capitalism.
how can degrowth challenge that without also having a really good analysis and conversation around land privatization? I think that's really important. And I'm that's my niche within the niche or my uh, babushka doll that sits in the middle there. This conversation about land needs to become a much bigger part of the degrowth discussion. Now, in permaculture, they always say that whenever there's a problem, there's a solution. Sometimes yeah. a problem is a solution. So let's talk about the solutions. Now, again, as with all your work, it blew me away with the public housing thing. So we get that all mm. to a second. But before then, I had two solutions in my mind, and I'd like you to deconstruct those a little bit. Like I've always seen, you know, the property sector as the most insidious manifestation of the growth society and after reading dr cameron murray's damning assessment of the property sector in the game of mates mm -hmm. um, i've personally been very keen for a movement to disrupt the system kind of like a extinction rebellion aimed at the property council and in the recent episode <laughs> that i've done i um, <laughs> that i broadcast i just warned that if you're going to glue yourself to the property council office just don't use a glue that they use to glue the fixtures in all the buildings that they're Making because it's barely corn flour and water, you know. <laughs> you just slide off effortlessly when the cops come. So, <laughs> you, you know, lynch the landlord is a little bit of a um, cliche in anarchist circles. It certainly is. <laughs> property is theft, says Bruto. <laughs> <laughs> you can't own property, man. Uh, yeah, and 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 there's something to it. Is is land property, um, or is land like air and water? part of our collective natural heritage. What happens when you commodify something so essential to our survival? It can become a phenomenon where people are priced out and we're seeing that phenomenon. That's a massive social justice issue. Um, in, indeed, I would say it's at the foundation of social justice issues. If you price people out of land, um, you put them in the most precarious situation. And this is, this is what creates refugees. This is what creates dispossession and landlessness. We in, from a housing first perspective, even in mental health and in addiction, uh, we know that housing is core to one's sense of security and um, well-being. What does it mean when we, particularly in our last phase of neoliberal financialization of housing, where we've taken it even to a new height of privatization, where land is floated on the stock market like shares and you buy individual bricks instead of a home, you just buy this kind of commodified share notion of land. It's such an extreme level of privatisation. As much as it's a question about degrowth and what could practically give us a new path, it's also a core social justice question in terms of if, if you've got a human right to survive, and I think most people would argue that we have a human right to survive, don't we also have the right to the things nature provides to sustain life? Uh, air, um, water, land. Is capitalism really a free system when it commodifies something essential to survival like land, that it commodifies something that's not indeed a product of the market, it privatises nature? You could argue from this perspective that capitalism is fairly um, dictatorial or, or fascist because it's then telling you you must sell your labour through the market in order to buy land back. So that actually puts us in a in a position where we're mortgage slaves. We, we're slaves to the market in order to, to survive, to, to put a roof over our heads. And so, I was wondering if the system is larger than us. So, for example, if um, we all managed to get rid of Harry Triggerboff, any one of us could fulfil the void by virtue of the fact that we've still got um, a privatised system and a system where more and more property is going in the hands of fewer and fewer people. So is that the danger of just um, blaming the property developers? Talking about, you know, mates between, you know, like deals between mates and, and property value. I mean, where anyone who has owned a home in the last, you know, 10 to 20 years um, has benefited um, from that. You know, the capital gain has been enormous. Um, you know, they talk about it generationally now, don't they? That, that the baby boomers, many haven't as well, but many have done quite well because they had got their foot in the door. If you got your foot in early, well, you did quite well. Well, that's a lot of Australians. As I said in that 1% article in the conversation, that's a good percentage of Australians who have done quite well out of all of that. I would be 
I mean, we always point the finger up, don't we? And we always say um, there's someone's done better out of all of this than we have. The fact is, if you if you live in Australia, you're probably part of the top 10% of global wealth holders. Uh, most of us are, some of us aren't, but most of us are. If you um, own a home in Australia, you're then in a much greater elite. You're probably in the top 1% because you probably have a net wealth over a million dollars. Inadvertently, I think, we're the beneficiaries and the perpetuators of a system that is not great for the world. <laughs> you know, mm. That's not our fault. Look, I really, sh- I really must qualify what I'm saying. I'm not trying to nail anybody to, a, to this problem. I'm saying it's structural. But the whole purpose of that article, which was saying that we are the 1% or we are the 10%, was trying to get us out of the mindset of pointing to an even greater elite than ourselves. But how do we escape this elitism? I think it's all about giving us opportunities that don't require us to be elite. And at the moment, those opportunities don't really exist. I mean, you could stop working and you could go on the public housing waiting list. That comes with a whole bunch of connotations at the moment. You know, we have a sort of a idea in Australia, you're either a successful market citizen or you're what in academia we call a flawed citizen, which means you've failed at housing and at work. Now, who wants to be in that flawed market citizen? It's stigmatised, it's everything. Could there be another way in which you weren't flawed, you were quite productive, but you were productive in a different way, in a degrowth sort of way, in the sort of way Ted Trainer describes as society. You were local, you were productive, you were cooperative. Um, well, that would require a different land opportunity to do those things. That, that's what we're, we're trying to develop in our thinking, this different opportunity. Any thoughts just before we... Um explore public housing on why yeah. other solutions to home ownership such as intentional communities, eco-villages and retrospurbia style share house renting in the inner suburbs might be a challenge. Does it come down to the, it's it's still privatised home only. Melbourne, there were, you know, often seven and eight of us um, trying to do like a retrospurbia intentional community within a privatised rent system. And it doesn't matter how many visioning meetings we had at the ultimate, you know, we still needed to pay that $4,000 at the end of each month with people coming Mm. and going. So that defines a day-to-day experience and anything too much beyond that, the typical result was uh, we don't have capacity for this because we're just Mm. trying to get the house ads out. I think, thanks for answering the question, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's a bad host. I answered my own question. <laughs> no, I think it's a great answer. And it's the, it's the sort of answer I would give. I think it is defining um, paying that rent or mortgage. I think eco-villages are great. I mean, they certainly help us and they help demonstrate what a lifestyle could look like in some respects. You know, we're getting some great building techniques from eco-villages. We're getting some great community development techniques around what how communities can work better together and cooperate, some great food production. Now, these are all wonderful things that can certainly serve a degrowth agenda. Uh, but, and he, and it's a big, big but, is that to follow in the, in the footsteps of these, what would I have to do to join an eco-village? Well, I would have to buy in. And how would I buy in? Well, I better find my stake in the market economy. I better do a lot of dropping in before I try and drop out into an eco-village because the cost is is quite high. Um, and whatever cost is lessened by a rural option, there's huge costs associated infrastructurally with setting up rural blocks. Um, there's lots of costs associated with that. And I think we would argue also from a degrowth perspective that the answer to sustainable resource use pretty much needs to be an urban model. I mean, if there's always going to be fringe models, urban sprawl into the fringes. Um, But really, if we talk about sustainability for 8 billion people soon, it would need to be a fairly high density model. It would need to be urban so that services can be available to people so that they're not car dependent, so that they can cooperate with people locally. And that's so their teenagers got foot access to collective spaces and so on. There's a couple of things I would challenge. One is the land privatisation issue. People who want to follow have to do a lot of dropping in. And the other one is the is the urban fringe element. I don't think I think it's great, and there will be there will be that sort of development occur. But if we're talking about global sustainability, 
the answer's largely about how urban spaces can develop in sustainable ways to give people the services and the opportunities, the transport and everything that they need to live a good life. It's, you know, you put people on the on the fringes of society in more rural settings, and of course they're car dependent, of course that they're urban sprawling, taking infrastructures like roads and sanitation out to sprawling areas. You know, that's not really the answer to what's happening in India and China and many of these developing countries. It's not really the answer for Australia either, as we steadily um, become a bigger population. Or in fact, even if we stayed at this population, it's not the answer either, because we currently have lifestyles that produce about 16 tonnes of carbon a year. And that's because of our transport and so on. How do we get back to the 2.1 tonnes of CO2 per year that the UN is calling us to for a globally sustainable footprint? That's an eightfold decrease in our consumption. Well, the answer is largely urban. It's, it's You won't need a car if you're in an urban situation. You can share a lot more resources, things like tool sheds and so on, because you have an urban density to do that. That's part of my concern about eco-village type development is that it comes with a bunch of connotations, private land being one and sort of um, rural imagery and ideas being another. So we're finally going to come to public housing now. Yay! As, uh, <laughs> you offer a more constructive solution through your articles via yeah. public housing. Now, um, I just tagged you on Town Planning Rebellion on Facebook that um, apparently in Berlin, um, a bunch of privatised houses have turned into public um, socialist housing. So it's been put into practice, at least in Berlin. So public housing has existing qualities that not only allows for a bypassing, if you will, of the private home ownership sector, but also has aspects that may allow for more of a common style living arrangements that may be encouraged, which I didn't really consider before uh, reading your work. So could you talk us through this overlooked potential solution? Many people might find the, the idea of that public land is quite foundational to a sustainable way forward. It's a very radical sort of thought, you know. They, I've, I've been hit with all sorts of questions like, you know, are you talking about a sort of a nationalisation of land, uh, um, you know, sort of a, a communist style um, takedown of landlords and, and so on? Well, actually, what I would say is that... Um, we have a great heritage of public land use for housing in, in Australia. Indeed, in, in the entire world, there's a great heritage, and that heritage is public housing. Clearly, particularly under neoliberalism in the last 20 years or so, we have seen a real welfareization of the idea of public housing. You know, it's as I said earlier, there's this idea of flawed economic citizenship. In order to access public housing these days, you have to show such a high level of dependency. You have to show that, you, you know, not only are you not working and that you don't have a home, but that maybe you have complex needs and, and so on. This is the only way into public housing at the moment. And what we're talking about is that there are incredible things, actually positive things actually happening in public housing. I don't know if uh, any of your listeners heard about um, tenant participation programs, but these are these are forms of local collaboration that do in fact happen in public housing where public housing tenants are involved in things like community food gardens, resource share programs, um, social events, and so on. The sort of things that, you know, Ted Trainer would talk about in terms of what we need to see in our neighbourhoods. Now, what's really interesting is that, that a lot of public tenants have the time and the incentive to be involved in these things. Why do they have the time? Well, they're not dragged away in every direction into the marketplace every every day. And they have low enough incomes that, you know, subsidising their food from a food garden becomes, yeah, well, becomes a, a good economic return. That might be a bit of a romanticisation of, of what's going on in tenant participation because there are problems in these communities. And these are problems that really come down to the way we position public housing um, as being only for people who are highly dependent. We almost ask people in public housing to position themselves as dependent. What I'm what we're looking at is the way we can actually give these spaces back the integrity they well deserve. If it is true that the oldest human economic settlement pattern is local cooperation on public land, if that's actually a, a valid and legitimate space 
to operate. And you can be a good citizen, not a failed citizen, if you're involved in productive local development on public land. In fact, you could even start taking on a lot of the costs that the state bears in creating that housing. You could be involved in self-build. You could be involved in food production. You can be involved in local resource sharing. You could even provide a service to your neighbourhood. What if a public housing community became an asset to their neighbourhood because they were doing wonderful things in community gardens and resource sharing tool sheds and all these sorts of things. If we could start to invest the um, status that such public housing communities deserve because of their great heritage um, in providing great human settlement opportunities, maybe we could help begin, and it's a long journey admittedly, but begin reframing these spaces as productive spaces. Maybe they could lead us in a degrowth way because these are people who have low incomes and it's really interesting actually their income is is about a fifth of the median Australian income if they're on unemployment benefits it's about where we need degrowth incomes to be Ted Trainer talks about an 80 percent reduction in in countries like Australia of well these people are living that what if we could make that lifestyle enjoyable because instead of positioning it as flawed and as dependent and then causing problems for those communities because we're taking all their status off them and stigmatizing them and of course you get social problems associated with that stigmatization and that loss of hope what if for those who chose it and i'm really got to be careful here because it really is about people who would choose this it's not about imposing rules on people what if another opportunity opened up where we gave people the opportunity to be involved in this sort of development for their housing security and for the productivity of their neighborhoods that's a really exciting space. And what's really interesting about it, Michael, is that all the policy settings are there for that. We have a heritage of public housing. We have a great heritage of tenant participation programs. We even have a program called Voluntary Work for the Dole, where if you're on the Dole, you can volunteer to do around 15 hours a week of work in the sort of areas I'm talking about and be productive. And then you can get that small income as a recognition of that work. If you're over uh, 55, you can do it indefinitely now. If you're under 55, you can do it for about a year and apply to do it again. We're working to extend that for under 55 so that people can continue in that space. And who knows, maybe slowly we could start to see those spaces transform from places we see those spaces as dependency spaces to spaces where we see them as actually leading us in a very new and sustainable and quite attractive direction. I think that's a policy space that appeals to even the most conservative people and politicians and so on, because wouldn't it be better that people are active rather than welfare dependent? Don't conservatives like people in public housing and on the dole being engaged in their neighbourhood, being volunteering, being involved? And yeah, sure, for some, it might be a stepping stone to paid employment as they gain skills and confidence and so on. But maybe for some, it would also be a way of life if they chose it. Really, it would be fulfilling the, that vision that we have in degrowth. Um, these would be people who are living on far less. Their lifestyle is in the ballpark of globally sustainable. And it's really fulfilling the sort of elements of um, degrowth that I think people like Ted Trainer, his idea of the conserver society, where he draws that great sort of image of what a neighborhood could look like. Maybe neighborhoods could start to look like that through this sort of a strategy. So it's a bottom-up type approach. It's really about unemployed people in public housing who choose an option like this to satisfy their income activity tests with Centrelink uh, through voluntary work for the Dole. It's about increasing those programs in things like food production and resource sharing and making sure they're good programs. And it's also about tenants leading those programs. And we're, we're actually developing a, a method for tenants to lead those programs called Village, which is an online way of organising with your neighbourhood to be involved in, in projects like that. So I think there's a great opening and opportunity right there without any policy innovation or anything to start reframing, reimagining the way we, we engage with and support um, communities involved in this stuff. Degrowth could be quite involved in that now. And um, if, if only we saw the potential. I hope that made some sense. <laughs> it made a lot of sense. And I was just thinking then, um, what if the government came and said, all right, so what here is privatised, that's still going to happen. But from now on, all our construction is going to be public housing. So, yeah. you know, so for the, all those people that are caring about their profits and stuff like that, um, they can all, you know, 
eat each other alive, or we can all eat each other alive. Um, and meanwhile, all this uh, public housing is just being um, yeah um, coming up. So there's a kind of a way out if you're kind of um, yeah uh, sick of well, that. I can't see a top-down response like that happening because, of course, we're very committed to our property ownership. Those of us who have succeeded are very committed to it, as you say. So you you wouldn't want to be going into World War Three by challenging that. What is happening, however, is that a lot of people are becoming increasingly alienated by this current system. We have a housing crisis in Australia and we have a system where things like globalisation of labour, as we, we lose manufacturing to cheaper labour sources overseas, we've got this growing population of people who are starting to feel alienated by both work and housing opportunities. Now, the response to that has been many fold. Some people are saying we just need to create new jobs, but you know, what new jobs? I mean, there's a prediction of up to 40% of our current jobs becoming redundant over the next five years because of things like mechanisation, globalisation, and also the phasing out of very carbon intensive industries. Well, some people on the left are now calling for UBI, that we should just give people an income based on them being a human. But the problem I have with the UBI is that that is very growth dependent. You, re you require huge government revenues and expenditures to service a UBI. What about a universal basic land access, a UBLA? And really, this is what many um, are calling for, an increase in public housing, an increase in supply of public housing. There's many calls. In fact, there's, there's been a call from the Reserve Bank not so long ago too for an increase in the supply of public housing. Now, if that public housing could be less dependent and people involved in their public housing could be more part of the creative process of building. We've seen great precedents in the UK, a project called the Hedgehog Project, which was on grand designs. You can look it up, it's on YouTube. This is public housing tenants self-building, a very exciting project, which starts to take costs away. And if we could slowly start building skills so that the cost of supplying public land to people who are being alienated because of the globalization of labor and mechanization and phasing out of carbon intensive industries, if we can start to just gradually provide those opportunities so that these people aren't causing crisis in our society, you might start to see how that's good government, that that type of increase in public housing could offer a pathway that's not about welfare and not about an opportunity in the marketplace, but a, another way forward. What we're hoping to do is set up at least some models of what this could look like, how it could be an asset to neighbourhoods, this sort of development, so that as we start seeing um, more and more people in need of opportunities, and we're already seeing that, it's largely hidden, but there's a lot of people in housing crisis, there's a lot of people in the employment crisis. If we could open up this other opportunity and break away from the binary of welfare dependence, there's only two options, either get a job in the market or you're a welfare dependent, and it's that old human, ancient human settlement pattern of giving people back land and the skills and the community to be productive on that land. Now, of course, they'll have an engagement with the market economy, but it would be a small engagement. It would be that 80% reduction in market economy that people like Ted Trainer are calling for. Because if they're on an income equivalent to unemployment benefits, well, that is an 80% reduction of the medium Australian income. Um, so we're starting to see something that's in the ballpark of a lifestyle that's around 2.1 tonne of carbon that India and China could follow. It gives people access to some modern lifestyle through greater sharing. It gives them security and social justice, but it doesn't do it in a way that, you know, is in this first world bubble context, which unfortunately so much of our sustainability thinking is about maintaining a developed world, industrialized world way of living. The idea that we can green the sort of lifestyle we've gotten used to here in the developed world, that's that's just too much to ask for 8 billion people and 10 or 11 billion people by 2050. It's just too much to ask that uh, we give a developed world lifestyle through solar or wind. The most recent UN emission gap report has called for a 2.1 tonne lifestyle. What if we could show that? I'd like to see that on grand designs because that would be the most grand design of all. And it's the grand design we really need to see, isn't it? That's the vision. Uh, it's easy to say, much harder to do. Of course. Um, <laughs> in, in a ideal, more just world, Alex, you would be our federal uh, planning minister. <laughs> oh, God. I'm not <laughs> sure if that's my ideal world, Michael. <laughs> I thought I'd um, 
Buff you up there and end up in a high note because I'm about to ask a question of population. Look, I think it's almost uh, impossible to avoid bringing up population in town planning discussions mm. as it is unfortunately a key component in the demand side of the equation. Mm. Um, so, look, I guess my question is with a radical restructure of how we build and have access to communities, would this make it easier or harder to accommodate ongoing population growth if indeed one of the key aspirations of the degrowth movement is to stop digging stuff off the ground in order to build ever more stuff? Yeah. Look, it's a really interesting question, Michael. And I, like you, I don't believe population can be left out of a discussion. Um, in fact, it's central to the discussion. And this is why I bring up the fact that, you know, we're 7.8 billion now and, uh, you know, projected to be upwards of 10 billion by 2050. I mean, many people talk about ethical family planning and so on to help educate, you know, women in the developed world about the amount of children they have and so on. Well, you know, fine. But the reality is, is we're dealing with the population we've got. The only question that brings to mind for me is the A part of that equation, the affluence part, you know, because, you know, we know impact um, equals affluence times population times the technology. That's the iPad equation we've been given for population. Really, the only intersection I think we have here, aside from some of the family planning stuff that's talked about, if it's ethical, is what level of affluence could actually work for, you know, eight odd billion people now is really the most central sustainability question. Given forecasted population by 2030, that 2.1 tonne carbon emissions lifestyle per person per year is what's sustainable. I mean, we are almost at 8 billion now. This is the reality. If you want to maintain developed world carbon privilege, and fly around the world, that's what you want to maintain. Well, then 8 billion people is a disaster because you, you get 8 billion people doing that and that's the end of the world right there. But if your goal is to degrow, is to do that eightfold decrease that the, that the UN is calling for, we could have a very good quality of lifestyle and the sort of what would our urban planning look like? Well, it would definitely be urban and it would definitely be high density to give services to people. It would not be car based. The huge amount of land that's dedicated to the car could be reclaimed for local productivity and, and settlement. That's the sort of picture you start getting. Now, in my mind, at least, the question is more about that A part of the equation, the affluence part. I don't encourage people to go out and have lots of babies, but at the same time, I feel like people make very rational decisions based on their economic circumstances. There's some pretty good studies out there to show that if people are given basic security, that their population size tends to stabilise. You know, I have a belief in that. If we can just create some degree of global resource justice and people aren't in poverty, that populations will stabilise. Although, you know, I probably personally put a bigger emphasis on population than, than some of you is. Uh, to me, the issue is putting any one uh, thing in isolation, for example, um, putting all your hopes into green tech or, or technology is problematic because it doesn't get a sense of the holistic picture. No, no. So let's um, wrap this up and give us, hopefully in a minute or less if it's okay so, <laughs> i'll do my best <laughs> uh, challenge right there with your own vision for a, <laughs> own vision for a post-growth future how do you see a day-to-day -day life play out in a more sustainable future mm. oh it's a it's a nice question i've been thinking more about that um i think i've described some elements of it already i would see um it as um, giving myself and my family, along with others, a degree of housing security and in some degree of independence with shared um, connection to, you know, other families, you know, shared facilities that would give me access to a modern way of life through greater sharing. That's one aspect of the vision I see, an urban lifestyle that gives me both privacy and access to resources through greater sharing. Um, lots of local um, productivity in terms of things like food and um, leisure. I see it as a, a lifestyle that, yeah, just gives me some of the great aspects of modern life, such as access to, you know, computer and things like that, but through a less consumeristic um, approach of keeping up an individual ownership of everything. 
Um, so shared tool sheds and shared um, offices and shared library and so on, that gives me access to these things. That's one part of the vision. I see it as being as you know, very central to my idea is that it's on public land so that I'm not in a mortgage or rent debt. So my work is local and subsistence because I'm not having to go into the market economy to service that rent or mortgage debt. I'm My labor is in my housing, it's in my local production. That's the broadest strokes of it. It's a, it's a nice quality of life. I actually see sustainable living as quite desirable. And we could learn a lot from Australia's Indigenous people in regards to all three of those principles about the way we relate to land as not a property, but as a living part of nature that we have a relationship with, we're caretakers of. Um, we could learn a lot about subsistence. We could learn a lot about collaborative um, ways of being and thinking. That's part of the vision that I, that I see. Look, thank you so much, Alex. Uh, I've, although um, land is something that we don't specify so much in the systemic change, thinking it's such a crucial part. And uh, thank you so foundational. much for advocating <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah. So for um, the listener out there, Pig Up listener, vibing with your work and ideas, and if they want to find out more, uh, what can they do? Where can they go? And how can they say, hello, Alex? Well, that would be nice. I hope there is a few, Michael. That would be really nice. Um, if they, the simplest thing to do is to Google Alex Land Commons, just those three words, Alex Land Commons, and you'll see a bunch, you'll see a few of my articles. You'll also see my profile with Western Sydney University that has an email um, attached to it, um, and they can email me from that email. It's my work email. Um, so that's, that's an easy way to find me, Alex Land Commons, and that's me Googling myself. <laughs> <laughs> we all do it <laughs> i'm admitting it right here but yeah that's that's how you can find some of my writing and my contact and so on and i've, I've certainly this is a conversation i there's no claim here that i have joined all the dots it's just a really important consideration this land issue that i'm trying to inject into the conversation more and i'd love to have that conversation with more people your listeners very much included well there you go open invite have a chat have a chat, chat. you should look this has been an absolute pleasure alex and as i said i'm a bad liar so i even mean it <laughs> On simplicity. How much is actually needed to live a full and prosperous life? Meditations on simplicity. Questions about how to live a meaningful and fulfilling life in a world of limited resources. Is more material wealth a goal for which we should constantly strive? Meditations on simplicity. Do not spoil what you have by desiring what you do not have. A political system can be no better than its culture. Meditations on simplicity. There is no wealth but life. He who knows he has enough is rich. People who have enough but do not know it are poor. He who knows he has enough is rich. Mindful Sufficiency, Meditations on Simplicity. He who knows he has enough is rich. People who have enough but do not know it are poor. He who knows he has enough is rich. Freedom thus implies restraint. We get our instructions. Superfluities only. Well-being could not be conflated with materialistic success. There is no wealth but life. We may seem poor in things, but we are rich in time. 
Thus, in our simplicity, we are free. We are free. You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast. We just heard from Alex Borman, who proposes a housing revolution as a practical consideration for the degrowth movement. As I carry on enough about the terrible housing situation in Australia, Alex gets my two thumbs up on this issue. Agree? Disagree? Furiously on the fence? Make your thoughts known by contacting PGAP and I will share your thoughts on subsequent episodes. Rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Share the episode with your friends, family, colleagues and most importantly, your most bitter of enemies. (laughs) Did I tell you I ended up buying land in Albany in order to do the eco house thing? I'm not quite at the 1% yet, but I'm slowly clawing my way up there. What can I say? I'm looking in the mirror and those devil horns sure are looking sparky. Join us next time on PGAP with more fun and frolics, esteemed guests and pumping tunes. Until then, folks. Until then.